Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today I want to preach a sermon entitled, if you're writing notes, The Power of Making Vows Before God. The Power of Making Vows Before God. You'll put a full colon after and put this independent clause a testament of dedication and trust put that independent phrase and write a testament dedication and trust and the reason why sometimes i put independent phrases is to better explain sometimes the ambiguities that the title of someone might carry to express further the heart of the text. Many of us have, I think, been acquainted in some way or to some extent to this concept called vows. You've heard about vows and if you want to have a more literal definition, a vow is a solemn promise or commitment made to God, a solemn promise or commitment made to God, or a pledge made between two individuals. This is important to first define it because somebody might not know the definition of what it is. So it's a promise or commitment you make before God or a pledge that you make to another individual, between two or more individuals. And there are two fundamental pillars on which every vow or oath stands. One is your moral obligation to fulfill. Every man under this order has a moral obligation to fulfill what they have committed. You are morally responsible when you make a vow before God or before man. But the other pillar also is that every vow is sacred and has a spiritual implication. The spirit realm records seriously every vow or oath that you make either with God or between man. These are very important. Those two pillars are important. You have a moral obligation, but every vow is of a spiritual connotation. It's sacred. Very important. But many of us have not yet understood the power of making a vow. And today I want to take some time to show you a few things in scripture, to open your eyes not only to the transformative power of the vows that we make before God, but also what is wanted 
from the believer who makes this vow. You know, we live in the New Testament dispensation. It's a dispensation of present truth. And I must emphasize that this is the age of grace. But I find many a time that when we are unskilled or some ministers are unskilled or inexperienced in teaching the message of grace, we find that some have used grace, the message, as an excuse not to fulfill the conditions of covenant. Our God is a God of covenant. And every covenant practitioner not only appreciates, but carries a deep reverence when it comes to the covenant that they have either with God or with man. There are laws that govern covenants. And you must understand the seriousness of a covenant. But back to this thing called grace. When we teach grace, I have realized that it's as though some people imply, and I emphasize wrongly, that grace is the excuse for us to escape the conditions expected from our side. Or that because we are in the grace dispensation, therefore there are now conditions in this covenant. And I tell people that's being short-sighted, especially for us who are preaching the grace. Bible says in the book of Genesis that for as long as the earth remaineth, as long as it is still today, tomorrow, next week, as long as you still can see this earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. There's always a principle, an underlying law that God has given or designed from the beginning of time that there will always be a seed time and a harvest. But that's applicable as of whether you are a man under the law or a man under the grace. That is why people who teach the grace message sometimes are provoked by the results that some people who are under the law seem to demonstrate in some instances, not all instances, because you find that the, sometimes the people under the law appreciate that the seed and harvest principle exists, but it seems as though people who teach the grace, some of them ignore the power of seed and harvest. So instead of teaching grace right, which is that grace is simply a divine enabler to aid, to succor, to advantage you in fulfilling the terms of the covenant, to pay your part, to do your dues, to ensure that you fulfill your side of this covenant. Some people think grace is the excuse not to do anything in fulfilling the conditions required. And in that we are found wanting if we don't teach the full counsel of God. Take for instance, if you are under the grace of God, this dispensation, does that mean that you should not give, you know, your tithes or in charge or help the poor because you're under grace, therefore, God will forgive you if you don't do what is right. And then compare yourself with a man who is faithful in his giving. Do you think the two of you are going to have the same results because you are under grace? Paul said that I labored more than all my brethren. There's a principle there. I've seen also some people in the New Testament, again, the grace dispensation, take lightly principles like tithe. They say it's a mosaic law. Moses never, never was 
the pioneer of this principle called tithe. This thing is older than the law. Paul tells you, I did not receive the grace of God in vain. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. That means, grace, the divine enabler, helps me do more than a man which is not under grace. In fact, if I am a man of grace, I should do more. My tithings should give more than a man gives his tenth. Or I should actually excel in every work of God than a man who is not under grace. Why? Because I have a divine enabler. You agree? Now, this is very important for you to note. When we go to this seed and harvest, again, I'm emphasizing something very important here. The seed is as the conditions that might be required for certain things. It's, let me give you another example, maybe a simpler one. When you take your child to school as a parent, do you tell your child, you know, when you reach class, just sit. Don't listen to anything the teacher is teaching. Don't write notes. Don't revise. The grace of God will carry you. When you get to the examination room, everything will come. Is that how it works? You pray grace over them to understand what is being taught. Grace over them to apply themselves in their revision so they not only appreciate what is being taught, but that they are able to master it and answer the right questions so they can pass. The grace carries them through, but it's an enabler. This is important for us to note. Are you following? Now, back to this thing called vows. I shared in the first service and I told people, look at every effective minister, every person living a glorious life, especially for people who are on the forefront of ministry. Every successful minister, every effective minister, if a man is approved by God in some way, you realize that they have a secret with God. And the secret of God every anointed vessel has in there is a vow that they have with God. Every man of God that I have known, read the ancients to those that are very distinctive in this age. You study them intricately and you realize if your eye can see beyond what the physical can teach you, you realize that they all have a vow with God. They have a vow with God. So when the Bible says that Obey the king for the sake of your vows with God. I'm just giving you an example of that text. He says, obey the king. Listen to the king. He says, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment in that regard because of the oath of God, because of the vows you have made with God. That's an example that uh, in this instance, in light of this, you realize that because of the vow I have with God, there's a way I cannot speak about my leaders. Even if I disagreed with the fountain of honor, there's a way I'm not supposed to speak to him because of the vows I have with God. Not whether he's right or wrong. You see what I'm saying? Because the kingly anointing comes with so much. In fact, in the next verses, the Bible says where the word of the king is, there is power. And there are kings in every phase of our lives. 
This king can be your mother in your house or your father. This king can be your boss at your workplace. You cannot have a vow with God and not know how to deal or respond to the people that are older than you. Are you following what I'm saying here? It's very deep to understand. But every man or woman that I know will be effective and efficient in the things of God. You'll always have a vow with God. It takes a great eye for somebody to be able to see it through. When Paul is teaching, he speaks to his spiritual children to observe his ways which be in Christ. There are things you can see outside. Those idiosyncrasies that you can look at and pattern yourself against an anointed man or woman of God. But there are things your physical eyes are not able to see that you can only interpret and are clearly estimated when you see into the man or minister to study those patterns. When you're learning from people who are doing well, whether it's an anointed man or your workplace boss or something, always look through and study inside them and see what makes them that success. Beyond what I'm able to see with the physical eye, because everybody can follow what can be physically uh, interpreted, but very few people are able to study what can be spiritually interpreted. And to see the spiritual means that you are an edge over and above your peers. But I wanted us to take some time and study this thing in the minutes that I have with you because we live in a world that is changing every day. It's shifting consciousnesses. Promises and values are shifting and fleeting. What we see in our generation is not what our generations before. So it's almost as though Man every other day is relieving himself of moral duty. It seems as though no man can be trusted for their word to say, I am going to do this and they do it. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, I feel, or will all, you'll all, all agree by the end of this session, that in a way it questions our dedication and our trust toward God in how we handle vows. But let me show you the power of vows in a few texts so you'll appreciate. A story is given in First Samuel chapter 1 and I'm not going to go through all uh, the details in there. I'm going to skip them because of time. But it begins with a man called Elkanah. He's married to two he has two wives. right? One is Penina and the other one is Hannah. Penina bore him children but Hannah Never had children. And the Bible says, and her adversary, Penina, always used to scoff at her. She laughed at her. She laughed at Hannah for bearing no children. They had times where they would go up the temple every now and then to worship God. And you'd see Penina with her children going up and she's scoffing at Hannah for not bearing children. And this, the Bible says, is because Hannah's womb was shut by God. But because the Hebrew, and I emphasize this for those of you who don't know, because the Hebrew does not have a permissive clause, it uses a causative clause. So in this instance, you'd think that it was God who shut Hannah's womb, but in the right rendering, really, it would be that Hannah's womb was shut and God let it be. Because God cannot shut a person's womb. He does not tempt with evil, neither tempteth any man with evil. So it's important. 
for you to know that because we've had people who come up and say, ah, you know, God created me uh, blind such that he can bring glory to his name. That's not God. That's the devil. That's why we lay hands on the blind and they see. Somebody shout amen. But God let her womb shut. He left it shut. Okay. In verses 11 of that same chapter, chapter 1, she goes to God in bitterness of soul, verses 10, and prayed unto the Lord and wept. And she vowed a vow, verses 11, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. You only knew Samson for keeping hair. But there was something here. No razor coming upon his head in the biblical terms is a Nazirite vow. Parents can make a Nazirite vow of committing their children to God and God would honor it. She said, I'll give him to you all the days of his life. In fact, if you study Middle Eastern culture, some in Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and a few of them, they still up to today maintain the tradition of the first fruit. The first is of the Lord, as the Bible would teach. These same people you assume don't know God. That is why in many Muslim nations, you find usually that their first sons are sheikhs because they go in in, 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 in mosques and, and, and study Sharia and all these other things to be prepared to serve God. Many of the, the, the richest people, even in Saudi Arabia, they do that till to present day. They commit their children early and they know this fastling is of the Lord. The rest we can do any other business, but with this fastling, it is of God. Especially when you now give reference to a patriarchal society in the olden ages, especially in the Jewish culture, they only knew men to serve and not women. Now today in the new dispensation, in Christ there is neither male nor female, Gentile nor Jew. So even if it's a your first child, you can commit that one to God. The rest will serve God, but it's a very distinctive, or let me use the word special place for you to say, this is my firstling and I'm giving it to the service of God. In Proverbs, it talks about the first seed of your vows. Those of you who are married. Yeah? What my son and what the son of my womb and what the son of my vows. But the son, not a son of my vows. She uses the word the son. This is Lemuel's mother. Lemuel was the, her first son, the son of her vows, the first seed that comes out of your womb. You committed to God for the service of God. Now, this woman, go back in text, was barren. She was not giving birth. Her womb was shut. And then she provokes a law of old. She knows, yes, my womb might not be able to bear a child, but this is what I know, that for every dispensation, God looks for a man when he wants to establish his purposes, if this womb is barren to have children for Elkanah, then I can actually avail it to God to carry his purpose. God needed a man one day, oh, this is deep. God needed a man one day to stand in the time when Israel would desire a king and needed the right vessel to anoint. He knew one time Eli would go out of his order and his sons would go off the course, but he needed a man to stand in the office of the priest to preserve Israel as a nation. And he knew that he was supposed to come out of some womb. Now, this is the power of vows. 
Vows open wombs. Vows open wombs. Now, I don't want you to only look at the physical womb, this thing in a woman only, but look at every stage of life as a womb. We are in multi dimensions of wombs. Ministry is a womb. The church is a womb. Because remember, Jesus Christ comes for his bride and the bride bears a womb. That's where the seed sits, the word of God. Look at 11. The parable is that the seed is the word of God. It's what comes into the womb of the church and then preserves us in fellowship as we mature. Every maturation began with a womb, in a womb, and the process of gestation or incubation. Nobody or nothing has come to its full form of expression without having started first from a womb. Everything began from the world unseen yet carried essence, significance, and identity. That's the purpose of a womb. It carries what is not yet seen yet by the world, but it bears its marks and essence yet on the earth. So whether you're talking about the womb of business, the womb of ministry, the womb of marriage, the womb, every dimension of womb, when you understand the power of a vow, you'll always provoke a womb to open. In fact, when you study um, the story of a man, I think uh, we're actually discussing it back with the pastors, called Jephthah. Thank God that story came to us. This man asked God for victory over, I believe they were the Ammonites. And he said, God, if you give me victory over the Ammonites and Israel progresses to the next phase, I shall give you the first thing that comes out of that door. Indeed, victory was given and his daughter came out. The Bible says Jephthah was saddened because he had committed a vow to God. And the first thing that came out of the door after he came back with victory was his daughter. And the Bible says he gave her to the Lord. He fulfilled his vow. Then, then she became a sacrifice. You see the power. Now you study the Hebrew and the name Jephthah means one that opens. Read the name Jephthah. The name Jephthah means one that opens. Vows open wombs. Vows open even the most barren womb. They can open. That's what Hannah discovered. That I might not be able to have a child by natural order, but I can provoke God to a place where I know he must comply. I know he's looking for some purpose to fulfill on the earth and I can avail my womb. That is why when she's praying, she says, give your handmaid a man-child. She didn't say give a child to your handmaid. She's specific. She says, give your handmaid a man-child because I want to raise somebody to serve you and I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. God said, here you have me. You could be barren, but with this one, I'm looking for workers. I'm looking for laborers. That womb must open. If you're a woman and you're in this room and you've struggled to give birth and you have had this text, I've just given you an answer. Maybe the reason why you are delayed is because you just want to have children. And God doesn't want you to have children. He wants you to bear a deliverer. 
Maybe the reason why that business is not working is because you just wanted to get a business and earn a living to pay fees and live in a good house. And God wants you to build a business that will bring glory to the kingdom. Do you understand that? Maybe the reason why the womb of marriage has not opened is because you saw your sister Agatha and Rita getting married and you're being jealous because they walk into the church with children and you also just want to enjoy that glory of being seen with a man seated next to you. Yet God just didn't want to give you a man. He wanted to build a marriage of purpose and bring glory to his kingdom. And he's saying, what is your vow? You get it? What is your vow? This is the power of vows. Hallelujah. I know people in this world who have the most remarkable miracles in life because they understood how God sees a vow. That's why he used the word transformative power of a vow. I know a man still alive because on his deathbed he made a vow and God had and said okay I know HIV kills but you've made a vow and I'm, I'm going to override this thing and get you back on your feet because you've made a vow now ultimate question imagine Hannah didn't fulfill her vow and I'm going to allow your spiritual antennas your revelational insight to go through that imagination to think deeply what was the consequence of Hannah conceiving a seed she had committed to give to God and not committed him as she had committed to the Lord what was going to happen because if this Samuel is not just an average man but he's a man set by God to deliver Israel. And you stand in the way of the deliverance of a nation. What's that consequence to Hannah? Because her refusing to take Samuel means she has aborted divine purpose. And the destiny of a nation is at stake. Would God rather let a whole nation to die? Or he would sacrifice that one for the sake of the nation? What was to happen to the destiny of Samuel if he was not taken under the right hands at the right time? That child's destiny was going to be affected forever except if God by his infinite grace and mercy might have to create a way for Samuel to find the right cloud to sit under. The scriptures are clear. When she prayed, and allow me to go back to that story. Verses 20. It came to pass when the time was to come about after Hannah had conceived, she bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. That same time a man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord their yearly sacrifice and his vow. They had vows they were giving every year. But Hannah did not go up because she said, I must win this child. And then after winning this child, I'll bring him unto the Lord. Husband tells her, okay, do what seems right. I want to skip to verses 24. When she weaned him, the Bible says, she took him up with her with three bullocks. And I want you to follow. One ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh and the child was young. 
and they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. She said to Eli the priest, whom she had met in the temple before, when she asked for that child and Eli told her, okay, God has heard. The Bible says, she said, oh my Lord, talking to the priest, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood here praying unto the Lord for this child I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked for. Therefore also have I lent him to the Lord as long as he liveth and he shall be lent to the Lord. And the Bible says, and he, Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. She gave him. Now, one, I may not have time to elucidate, but I pray I get the grace one day to be able to express in how I see it. I'm seeing a priest releasing a woman into the grace of bringing forth, yet actually this priest is preserving a posterity for his very office. Some of the prayers you think you're praying for other people can actually be your advantage. That's a sermon I'll preach one day. Because you must learn to pray right for people. Because what you might pray as a miracle for another might become your deliverance one day. Who knew that as Eli was praying for this woman or spoke over this woman, he was actually preparing the preservation of Israel because one day Eli was going to disconnect to God and God would need a man to speak to and Samuel will be that man. Who knew that as Eli was grieving because he had lost his sons to the deception of the world, he was going to receive another son because the day Hannah took uh, Samuel to Eli, that day, Samuel became the son of Eli and he left the cloud of Elkanah because the seed of Elkanah could not raise the next prophet. Could not raise the next judge. It's important to be under the right cloud. Tell your neighbor it's important to be under the right cloud. Hallelujah. Can I go deeper? Many of us usually have had people use these phrases when they are praying in Job 22 uh, verses 28 huh? when you're praying you shall decree a thing and that thing shall be established unto thee and the light shall shine upon your ways you shall decree a thing and if it's said in the right voice it can feel deep you shall decree a thing I decree and declare they did sound so heavenly and anointed. And the light shall shine upon your ways. And he says, when men say there's a casting down, you shall say there's a lifting up. You realize that many of you miss out the weightier matters of this portion of scripture. Because this portion of scripture has a condition many people skip. This portion of scripture is not for everyone. That is why many of you who make those declarations don't actually see the manifestations of those declarations because you miss out on the pattern the principle the conditions let's go back to verses 27 listen you read 28 and 29 god just one verse before the two and 27 says listen you shall make thy prayer unto him and he shall hear thee and thou shall pay your vows. Eh? You shall pay your vows. You shall pay your vows. When you say, I have vowed to do this for God, pay it. 
the world of prayer is consonant to that law of fulfilling your vows. They work simultaneously. There's a reconciliation in the spirit when a man is praying, yet a fulfiller of vows. And there's a contradiction, a breach of spirit when a man can pray, but he cannot fulfill his vow. There's a breach. There's a pervasiveness therein in the spirit of that man. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, and I'll read for you. Chapter 5, verses 4. He says, when you vow, vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. He says, do not suffer your mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel, oh, I vowed, but it was an error. He says, wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of your hands? Again, this is not God destroying, but you let the devourer destroy the work of your hands. Permissive, not causative. In other words, you vowed and said, I'm going to buy for this church two bags of cement every six months. Heaven recorded that vow. Pay those two bags. It's not about how much you give. That's why in this ministry, you've never had me tell people, oh, give, please help us. If you don't give, it's okay. Until you grow to that level. We don't force people here to give. We don't manipulate people here to give. But what we're trying to say here is, if you have committed and said, I'm going to be a partner to God and build this ministry, I'll be sending 10,000 shillings pay your vow. Because like I said, not only are you morally obligated, and that puts a question on your moral standing as a believer, but it's a sacred thing before God. Every time you make a vow before heaven, it's written. The scribes of heaven are appointed to write these vows. Your marriage vows are written somewhere in heaven. Now, listen. Somebody says, oh, I did it in error. I committed, but I committed it in error. Some of you have been with me when we go to ministries and then we want to build, because every year we build for churches. We buy land for churches. Even while we're still looking for our own to build, we're still building other ministries. And I thank God that you guys have been a very, very helpful, helpful people. But some of you, we go to a place and, and somebody says, I pledge to give 50,000 in that church. And it's amazing. I fundraise for other churches, but I've never fundraised for Fanero. I don't fundraise for the church, this church. I will give to other churches. It's amazing. But somebody says, oh, I'm going to pledge 50,000 shillings for that church. And then two, three, four months, they forget it. They tell the angel it was an error. And the Bible says, you destroy the works of your hands. Now that same person is having trouble at their workplace. Their bosses are against them. And then they come for prayers. Ah, Papa, he'll pray for me. My boss is on my case. The lady hates me. The man hates me. He wants me dead. You're praying. You're fasting. Things are not getting in line. Why? Because you made a vow. And by your very words, you have condemned your works. Do not make a vow and not take the responsibility 
to fulfill it. God has no pleasure in fools. It's a foolish spirit. Don't vow them. God says, it's okay, don't vow. I will not hold you against what you've not committed to, but when you stand and say, I'm going to do this for God, do it. Some of you promise people things. Oh, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for the church. I'm going to do this for the orphanage. I'm going to do this for my friend. I'm going to contribute. Even when you say I'm giving a contribution of a wedding to you, heaven writes it. Some of you, you've pledged. You, you have a list of pledges in your names that you have never fulfilled. And you don't know the weight you can't even interpret the weight of that action on your life. Some of you are still, oh, uh, I'm struggling with a generational curse. I'm struggling with this thing of my father's family. These things have been following me. Pray for me. And some Christians, honestly, you look at them and you study very intricately. They don't have any demon of a generational curse. They are simply victims of commitments they have made and not honored, and now they've devalued their voices. They've devalued their sound. Are you following what I'm saying? This is important for you to know. Because today Christians are skipping the responsibility of principle and patterns. The world out there actually understands these principles. These Christians of ours, they're ignoring the principles. Simple. That is why when Jesus in his teaching is teaching, Matthew chapter 5 verses 33, he says, again you have heard that it has been said by them of all time, you shall not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But shall perform unto the Lord thy oaths. He says, but I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is the Lord's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shall thou swear by thy head, because thou cannot make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than this cometh of evil. Why does he say it's evil to swear by something? Because he says, it's not by what you swear in making your covenant with me. It's what you say. That's most important. Even if you don't say, when you say, I swear by my mother, I'll come next week. He says, that's of the evil. Don't even say, you'll kill your mother for nothing. You tell somebody, I will come next week. But let your word be your bond. The word understands it. You meet a man who doesn't know God. Non-believer. Okay? You tell him, we're going to do this deal on Tuesday. Tuesday, 8 a.m. He's at the table waiting for you to do the deal. You call a Christian at midday Tuesday and they say, ah, I, I forgot. You tell the angel, you're telling the angel, I'm sorry, it was an error. And then you start to look at your life and you're struggling financially. And you think there's a demon, a generational curse following you. No, no. It's your own irresponsibility for not fulfilling your part. If I'm an employer and I have two people, I have a tongue-speaking Christian who prays for the organization but comes late every morning. And a fellow who doesn't pray for the organization but comes early every morning, does their work, goes out in the field, 
sells, has very great numbers, brings in the deposits if it's a bank, brings in customers if it's a retail shop. I would keep the guy who doesn't pray. I would keep the guy who doesn't pray, but can show me the fruit of dedication. Instead of keeping a praying monkey, <laughs> that doesn't understand that sometimes, and I'm not using monkey to offend you. How many of you in management have done something called monkey business? Ah, so it's a, it's a management concept. Not just now, some of us, somebody had already taken offense. <laughs> you know, I have a person who's just praying. But when I get to the practical sense, no, imagine you're in a relationship, a marriage relationship. Hmm? And your partner is giving you, they are giving you gifts, huh? Love language. They are hugging you. They're kissing you in the pet, telling you, honey, I love you. And then you tell your wife, honey, I want to show you how much I love you. And she said, show me. Let me stop. Rakote, kote, kote. Zobra daga kubadiga. Sumpra katalata. Sunday, I have booked you for dinner. I'm taking you out for a date. Then she dresses like she's coming for a date. Then you take her in an overnight. <laughs> and she gets slain and comes back dirty. <laughs> Tell her I'm taking you for an overnight. Don't call it a date. That for me, I'm too holy. If it's dating, it's intercession time. Some of you are too spiritual. <laughs> There. <laughs> Are you following what I'm saying? This is very important. You do what is supposed to please her as a woman, as your wife. Okay? Be present as a partner. That's what they understand. You see, that marriage won't last. You, you know what I'm telling you. It cannot last. You understand what I'm saying? That's what the Bible says. He that is married careth for the things of this world that he might please his wife. You see? Other responsibilities. Imagine you're in a marriage relationship and your wife tells you, honey, we need fees. In Jesus' name. Then she's like, fees. No. You go out of that house and earn an income and bring fees. Praise the Lord. Are you following what I'm saying? You bring fees. After paying fees, then we can Are you following what I'm saying? Are you following what I'm saying? So he's saying carry the integrity of your word and understand that when you say something, it should mean a lot to God. Now this is the man who is saying, go back to Job, you shall pray unto God if you have said a commitment or a promise to him, you pay it. In lieu or in light 
of the fulfillment of that vow, you are pronouncing to God that I take my commitment to you, my dedication to you, serious. This is the expression of your trust. You're telling God that I value every word and I know the weight of everything that comes out of my mouth. And this is a sign of that fulfillment. And if you're that kind of person, then he says in 28, because you are that kind of person, he says, in that light, when you decree a thing, it shall be established. In other words, when you pay your vow, it's a consecration of your expressions. It purifies your voice and accentuates your sound in the spirit realm to carry such a weight of authority that as you spoke and fulfilled, God and the spiritual world take you serious when you turn to something to decree. Because when your word was spoken in the place of vow, it was fulfilled. When you turn and say, I decree and I declare that it is not going to rain today, heaven hears. He says, it shall be so and not otherwise. And he says, because of that, the light shall shine upon your ways. In other words, you'll have illuminated ways. The light of God will shine on everything you do. That's why I said, every man who has a distinctive mark on their lives, every man who can say that eye opens and it should open, that tooth grows, that, that situation changes and it changes, you will realize they have a certain place where they have consecrated the vows they make before God and the importance of the fulfillment of those vows. This is deep. He says, it shall be established. Because you stood in that church and said, I will buy windows. That church still has no windows. And you're giving an excuse. Let me tell you. Even if it means to sell your own property, to fulfill the pledge you made to that church, do it. Don't play with God. Don't play with God. I made a vow to be serving in the ushering team. Every Thursday shall be available. You're only absent and you should only be absent under unavoidable circumstances. Not because it skipped you. That shows unseriousness. In every vow you make before God, take it personal and make sure you fulfill what you told God. There are things that I agreed with God in covenant from the time I said to serve God. And these are the things by God's grace I try to pay. I'm saying this because this is the challenge of all mankind, including myself. We easily forget when we're out of trouble. Oh God, I need a job. I promise you that the day I get that job, I'll give my first fruits and I'll give my tithes. Ah, heaven records and says, I was looking for a kingdom financer. You get the job tomorrow morning. One month. Two months. You find this person four or five years later. Are you tithing? Do you give in the church? Nah. 
<laughs> you know, I tried, but <laughs> the needs are many. And that is why he emphasizes something here in Deuteronomy 23, 21. This is important. 23, 21. He says, when you shall vow a vow unto the Lord, thou shall not slack to pay it. Do not delay to pay it. For the Lord will surely require it of thee. It would be seen in thee. You see again? There's something conflicted, breached in your spirit. If you can tell God that I'm going to help this orphan and you don't help that orphan. I'm going to feed this widow and you don't feed that widow. You don't do it quicker. You, you're not slacking it. In other words, I mean, you're, not, you're, not, you're not slowing it. Let me use the word slow. He continues to say, 22, but if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. In other words, we don't care if you don't vow on this. Verses 23, that which is gone out of thy lips, thou shalt keep and perform, even a free will offering, according as thou hast vowed unto thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. Even if it's a free will offering, I'm going to buy you shoes. Heaven records that. Give me the New Living Translation and let us read from the verses 21 because it will bring better English here. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, he says, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised. For the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill your vows or you'll be guilty. In other words, yes, yes, I'm a tither, but you delay your tithes, you delay your giving, you delay your commitments. You know, there are children I educate. But I should know when their time starts, listen, I have never paid in bits for any child I'm educating. I'm not boasting. I'm trying to help somebody get an example. I pay their fees full because this is a vow. Mine might not have to pay full, but when it comes to the vow I have with God, every child under my care and education, I have paid their full fees from the day they are reporting to school because this is a vow I have with God it has nothing to do with that child God can provide for that child with or without me but the fact that I made a vow to educate that child I should know promptly before they begin school that money should be on their account because this is my vow with God promptly you know some of you think ah uh, you know i'm going to keep my tithes for four months five months i'll bring it anyway god knows at least he knows my heart that i'll give it yes he does but you're never going to receive the same grace as a man who got that money and put it aside immediately it's an expression of your dedication and honor for god go back to this story of the first fruit they got the job, but they had rent, they had fees issues, they didn't even have transport to the work. And they said, ah, you know, let me forego these two, three, four, five months, first get this settled, then I'll give the first fruit. I even seen Christians who say, I'm going to give half this, yeah, this month, because the next month, I'm not cheating, I'm just going to give half this month, and then in the next two or three, I'll go releasing plus the tithe until I finish it. Hmm, yeah, that's okay. But there's a, there's a person, who had even more problems than you did and promptly gave it. Because I tell people, think about it this way. If you're not given your first fruits, for example, because 
you had problems. You were struggling financially. Let's imagine a scenario where that job was not there that month. Were you going to survive or not? Mm -hmm. So you have to look at that job as if it wasn't there that first month. If there was a way you were going to find a way to survive, surely there should be a way you should find to honor your vows properly. This is not only money. It's every aspect of life. You see, if you tell a person, it's like I tell people, if I say, lend me money, I need 10,000 shillings. I'll pay to you on Thursday. Heaven has written Thursday. Heaven has written Thursday. And then, Thursday comes, you actually have the money. It's not in your head. Or some of you, it's in your head. But you keep deferring. Ah, let me say, next week, uh, next month. But you even have the money. You're just lazy to go to the bank and pay the person. When you needed it, imagine the person you wanted it from was telling you, ah, uh, come next week. And your mother was in hospital and you needed that money. They needed to operate your child and you needed that money. If the loan was given to you promptly and you say, I'm going to pay it next week. If you're not able, which is understandable, look for that individual and tell her, you know what, John, I'm sorry. I was not able to fulfill my vow by Thursday. But give me another two or three days and surely I shall pay. Repent first. Heaven recognizes you as a moral person. But some of you, you neither call or write and ignore this and act like because you have ignored it, heaven has not marked it. Oh no, brother. It has. It has. And whether you think those things are light or not, heaven doesn't. Because like I said, you can devalue your sound in the spirit realm. Or put value and weight on it. Any man who honors his word has a grace to command things in such a distinctive way. And they respond promptly to you as you respond promptly to the will and purposes of God. That's what he says. And light shall shine in your ways. And the next verse, when men say there's a casting down. Now, many people don't know this portion of scripture in verses 29. If you read it in the Amplified Version, it actually brings out the real or full expression of what the Hebrew language was trying to articulate here. And this is what the Hebrew said. When, where is it? Yes. When they make you low, Job 22, 29. You see, you remember when you read in the KJV that when men say there's a casting down, Job here in the Amplified, which also gives us the connotation of the original Hebrew, actually says when they make you low, when you are attacked by your persecutors, when you are spoken evil over at your workplace, the Bible says you will say there is a lifting up. You will say because you have the opportunity and the audacity and the jurisdiction given by heaven because you're not a man which prays only but a man who fulfills his vows you have that right to say you have said you're going to fire me i cancel that in jesus name and nothing will happen you know why because you pay your vows you consecrated your altar when you elevated your sound when you spoke i will do a promise to god and you fulfill it he says you carry a certain authority that when people are putting you down, you'll always say, I'm not going down. And once you say it, because, and this is amazing, 
That is why we must start the witchcraft because some people think witchcraft is going to witch doctor and shaking these things. And you know that people are so fascinated with studying about devils. You know, in my first earlier years of ministry, I just used to know how to rebuke devils. I rebuke, 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 rebuke. People scream and people say, oh, this man is anointed and this and that. But I started to realize that the people who were rebuking devils out of were not actually getting transformed. They could heal, but not transformed. They could get a job, but not transformed. And because they're not transformed, they always found them again in the fangs of the serpent, again being bitten. You've rebuked a devil out of Narunkuma. Tomorrow, she's fighting with a neighbor. And they're like, we've been rebuking devils for these months. Your temperament has not been arrested yet. You cast out a devil out of this person. A few months later, she's pregnant out of wedlock. She's drinking. But we've been casting out. Yes, people saw people screaming. And that's why I tell people, if we studied the New Testament and understood what Jesus did, many of these churches would either close or change their doctrine. Because Jesus asked me, he asked me, say, Grace, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Lord. Study my life. What did I do for most part of my life? Did I teach about devils? I rebuked devils. And I taught about the kingdom. You see the difference? Some people have made it their life's work to teach about devils and little concerning the kingdom. Some of you are in those, you're already studying which demon did what last Tuesday and last week and which demon strangled you, which demon is burning your clothes, which demon is refusing you to get married, which demon is disturbing your children, which demon is... Yeah, yeah, and these demons can be, but who feeds those demons? What feeds them? Your breaking pattern and principle. The priest demons are they're not the issue. They're defeated already. But you get into this individual who has a spirit of loss following her and you ask her, do you follow the simple principles of giving? Ah, no, pastor, I don't. So, is it nuclear physics to help you reconcile the fact that the financial challenges you're going through are as a result of you floating the principles of the spirit, not the demons of your great-grandfather's uncle? Paul entered Ephesus, the city of demons. Baal was the king there. The goddess Diana had an altar. And he said in there, so mightily grew the word. He didn't say we had deliverance sessions. No, so mightily grew the word there and prevailed. They prevailed on the precinct of simply hearing truth. Truth transforming them. Of course, there were some which were demon-possessed and they rebuked the devils. But you never heard Paul gathering a bunch of intercessors to teach about the seven gates of hell. You know, some of you are interested in those things. Yes, they're intriguing. The Bible calls them myths that profit not them which are engaged therein. You, you love the depths of things, but they don't fix your marriage. They're not going to take that asthma or sinuses out of your nose. You're just going to hear things that will fascinate you and you pray. Maybe have a few short fixes and see glimpses of light, of hope, but nothing is really going to establish you out of the pattern or the spiral of trouble out of trouble, 
problems out of problems, disease out of disease. You're going to live that perpetual cycle. Why? Because you have not come to the knowledge of the truth. He wills that all men be saved, comma, and that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. And the truth is not knowing which demon was sent to you on Tuesday. Truth is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody gets to the Father except by me. Paul says, when I was among you, I sought to know nothing. Be acquainted of nothing. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you get one believer and teach them Jesus every Sunday and get another believer and tell them which demons and the 17, seven gates of hell and the five principles of demonic altars that attack you every Tuesday and you get these two Christians, the person who has understood the word will be by far superior in results. Why? Because the world where even those demons are, were made by this word. Have you learned something? But some of you are fascinated to know which demon is working where. Someone wants to hear someone on uh, the 15 bondages. Those are the things you want to hear. <laughs> Look at their proponents you'll see there's something that just quite won't cut through. Because we have not understood fully what refines us. It's the word of God. Do I rebuke devils? I do. But it's not enough if I cannot bring this person to the knowledge of the truth to teach them to guard themselves and fight from within by the knowledge that has been given to us concerning what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus. This is important. Otherwise, some of you have rebuked and rebuked and prayed. You've gone to every person teaching deliverance. You're just getting bound every day. Because you're just going to know the depth of Satan. That's all. And the Bible says it in Revelations. Some people just... <laughs> he says, but unto you, Revelations 2.24... I say unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan. Eh? There was a doctrine spoken of in the book of Revelation, which just speaks of the depth of Satan. Some people just want to talk about Satan and, and how many angels there are. Someone is clicking on someone preached by somebody saying, how many angels, fallen angels are in hell? What's your business? The gates in the corners of hell. Are you going to enter one? Who are you studying those things? Teach me about the gates of heaven. <laughs> Set your eyes on things above. And then some Christian will say, <laughs> you are joking. That one doesn't know deliverance. I told you, you bring somebody with a demon. I'll show you. But some of us can do even way more than some of these individuals. I can use scream, but at the end of the day, if we don't put truth in your life, because I tell people, if a Christian is going to always move in bondage for the rest of their lives, then what's the point? What's, where is our hope? You who delivers me, how did you get delivered? If every day you're teaching me about devils. So you're free, but me, I'm bound for the rest of my life. Or those who are free will leave. Hell, those who are bound come. You understand? Then you quarrel with them for leaving the church. But they are free. Are you listening? Let's finish this. Let's finish this. I'm helping some of us here. Let's finish this. 
that's why Satan has no problem with deliverance ministry. He has a problem with word ministry. To set a man free and keep them free. How many of you have seen a demon scream out of somebody? Then after a week or a month, the same demon is still in that person. That means he doesn't fear to come back. You understand what I'm saying? He doesn't fear to come back. But the word of God. That is why the house must be filled with knowledge. I'm not against deliverance. I'm only saying it's incomplete. If it carries no word to establish a man in liberty. So he says, when they say or cast you low, as the Amplified Bible has said, you shall say. Why did I bring in that? When we're teaching about things like witchcraft and stuff, some people think witchcraft is simply going under, oh, this is where the point was coming. Some people think witchcraft is just going under, you know, a heart and then speaking incantations only, sending spirits to someone. Let me tell you, the deepest form of witchcraft is speaking a curse over someone. Some people say, that person practices witchcraft because they see them going in a shrine. No, even the person who wakes up to curse you, anathema, to curse you, is witchcraft. Some parents pronounce witchcraft over their children. Some husbands and wives pronounce witchcraft over each other. Eh? Somebody say, God forgive us. You understand what I'm saying? That is why if somebody says you're going to fail, there and then you will say, in Jesus' name. I'm a success and I can't fail. Leave it there. Don't add 40 days of fasting. Uh-uh, I'm of God. What? No, you already have it. It's already over you. The bristle of righteousness is on you because righteousness is imputed on you through faith. The helmet of salvation is in you. Somebody asked me, when they say put on, do we put it off sometimes? I ask them, how can you put off? And then salvation. That means you are born again, then you get born again, and then you put it down, and then you're not born again, and then when the devil attacks. No, the armor of God is on us forever. When we receive salvation. So Paul didn't say continually put on. He said put on. But some of you, every time the enemy comes, you put on. Meaning, you didn't have it. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Fulfill your vows. And do everything you've committed before God and man promptly. You will see light in your ways. You will see the weight of your words. You'll speak simple words, but they'll come with such a power. That everything you declare shall be so and not otherwise. Heavenly Father, we bless you for your word this afternoon. We repent where we have spoken. Where we have done contrary to the word of truth. And I bless you Lord tonight. That you align us to fulfill your vows. And that will be more effective and efficient people. Believers. In Jesus name. Listen to this. I just remembered. And there is something that. 
in that very portion of scripture, I missed out something that I feel you need to go home with. When he says that when they put you low, you shall say there's a lifting up. There's a verse there also that says, he will even deliver the one for whom you intercede, who is not innocent. That a person will have done something wrong and God knows it's wrong. But because you're a man who pays your vows, God will deliver that man because of your prayer. Because these vows consecrate even your hands in the spirit, clean hands. That's why there are men who are preserved by their wives' prayers. The man is rebellious, but he has an obedient wife. He's not giving, but his wife is a tither. And she intercedes for him and God preserves him. There are men who are preserved by their mother's prayers. Their mothers are givers and praying women. And these guys can, you know, do whatever they want. But you ask, but why is this guy a success? Yet he's rebellious. No, there's a righteous one paying their vows, interceding for them. That is why I tell people, never take lightly the people who pray for you. Especially those of you who have praying mothers and praying fathers. That's why I tell people when I address my mother, I go on these knees. Not because, it's not a show of, I'm not trying to show the world. I do that openly and not openly, even privately. Because I know the prayers she made for me when I was still rebellious. You understand? Don't take for granted the people who stand. Don't be quick to criticize people who pray for you, especially when they have fulfilled vows before God. And sometimes those are the people you esteem lightly. But you have no clue that you're preserved by that cloud. Tomorrow leave that cloud or let that cloud go away. That's when you see the trouble. Man says, from the day my father died, my mother died, things went south. It means they were the ones preserving your altar. There are men, as long as they were okay with their wives, they were wealthy. The moment they broke that and started to hurt them, everything went south. Why? Because the woman kept a certain vow with God and prayed or interceded for this man. And now he no longer wants her prayers and everything starts going down. Are you following what I'm saying? But what caught me was that a man who fulfills vows can even intercede for the guilty and God will hear. I didn't want you to go without receiving that in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Do big for God. Um, one more thing. I want to pray for anybody who wants to give their lives to Christ. If you're here and you say, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I want you to repeat these words after me. From your heart, say, Lord Jesus, I thank you because you died for me and you were raised for my glory. Today, I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm born again change me, transform me, reveal yourself to me. Amen. This sermon has been brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number plus 256-200-999-400 or email us at info at fenero.org. You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Fenero Ministries International. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowship 
worships at the Uma Upper Gardens from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. and for our Sunday services at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. at the Uma Multipurpose Hall. Fenero, make manifest.